Well, hey guys, happy you guys are here. Um, this is our last rally for the semester. It's not the last one ever unless Jesus comes back, um, which would be great, hopefully, for everyone. Um, but, guys, I'm going to start tonight. I'm not going to start with a silly story. Normally, I make, you know, I make fun of myself and we all laugh, or whatever. I'm not going to start like that tonight. I don't have some, you know, crazy cool story. Um, I'm going to start tonight with a little bit of, like, some spice. Okay, you guys ready? Like, like, we're going to B-dubs, we're getting blazing, and we're not just taking a bite. We're, like, going to rub it all over our lips, okay? Right? And then we're going to rub our, all right? Um, I'm going to read you all a quote. Uh, this is a, a, a Welsh preacher. His name is Leonard Ravenhill. Any of you all know Leonard Ravenhill? Okay. I really believe this man was a prophet. Um, I don't say that lightly, um, but if you know anything about prophets, all they ever, t all they ever preached was spicy messages, right? Um, and so this is a quote from um, a sermon of his. Um, I'm not going to try and imitate his voice. It is intense. I'm going to try and kind of channel some of his passion, though, all right? So, but you can go listen to it. it. It's awesome. But this is what he says. He says, there is only one way to heaven. There are a million ways to hell. And what do you do to go to hell? Nothing. Just do nothing. You don't have to thumb your nose at God. You don't have to blaspheme the name of Jesus. You don't have to be an adulterer. Just coast on. For the greatest sin in the world is not adultery. The greatest sin is I can manage my life without God. That's the greatest sin in the world. You say sometimes to yourself, I wonder why doesn't God burden me? Do you know why? Because he can't trust you. That's why. You're not strong enough to carry the burden. For most of you here, you do not need more light. For this will only make it worse at the judgment. What you need is more obedience. I hear that and I'm just like, okay, all right. You know, it's like, well, you don't know me. Like, there's a little bit of heat. There's a little bit of punch, right? This is, this, is some, this is some spicy stuff. And I hear this and I'm like, I read this. Oh, it's not there anymore. It's fine. Um, I'm like, oh my gosh, we could talk about like 10 different things. We could talk about heaven and hell. We could talk about you know, coasting, we could talk about all these different things, obedience and, and light given and light received and all these different things. But what I want to talk about tonight is this point that he brings up. And, it, and I just want to ask it this way. It's a simple question. Can God trust you? Can God trust you? Right? Ravenhill says many people wonder why God doesn't give them greater burdens. It's because he can't trust them. Can God trust you? Are you someone that God would trust to accomplish what he wants to do in and through your life? What he wants to do on this planet, are you someone that he can trust? And that's a yes-no question, right? And so maybe you're like, oh, I don't know if I, what's the qualifications? And that's the preceding question. What, what qualifies us as being trusted by God, right? What does God look for in the person that it pleases him to trust? What are the qualities? What is it in your life that would make you trustworthy to God? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, right? Like, this is, a, this is a big question. This is this is kind of like, I hope it's already kind of stirring you and challenging you a little bit. Um, and so we're going to do that. It's awesome. Um, but before I tell you what it is that God looks for, I want to tell you about another hero of mine. So Lynn Ravenhill is one of my heroes. Another one of my heroes is a man that many of you guys have probably heard him speak. You've probably um, read some of his books. You've probably heard us talk about him. Some of you might have even met him. His name is Winky Prattney. Anyone? Winky? Okay. Winky um, is one of my heroes. Uh, he's, I can say, he's not a great friend, but he's a friend. I've played tennis with him. Like, he's played tr pranks on me. He made me carry his laptop into a movie. Okay? A movie theater. And then I sat there and I said, do you want your laptop? He said, no. And so I had to hold it like this 21-inch MacBook. I had to hold it for the whole movie because I wasn't going to put it on the ground. I was like, what the heck? And he, like, giggled when he did it. So I was like, you did this on purpose. Um, Winky Prattney, if you don't know who he is, um, he was a world-traveling teacher, theologian, evangelist, um, loves, loves, loves college-age students. Um, and he's from New Zealand. So he spent the majority of his life traveling around the world, okay, and, and raising up the next generation. In fact, there are groups like Hillsong. 
he actually was friends with the people that were at the inception of that and had influence in their life. Groups like YWAM, Youth with a Mission, right? Like this man, most people don't know his name, but he has influenced great movements of God. Um, and so he's traveled all over the world. And one thing that happens if you travel a lot, if you go on 10-hour, 15-hour plane rides, you obviously sit next to someone, right? And what is one question that everyone on a plane asks? Oh, so what do you do, right? What do you do? And so he got asked that question literally thousands of times. And, and so if you know Winky, he's kind of goofy. He's ca he doesn't just always give you the straight answer. So what he did was that he made himself a business card, and this was his business card, all right? Winky Pratney, Galactic Management Associates. <laughs> and so he would hand them their card, and they would be like, um, so what do you do? And he's like, oh, I work for Galactic Management Associates. They're like, what is it? He's like, it's a management training program. I'm like, well, what are you training for? To rule and reign the universe. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our mission is world domination. It's like, okay, like, who did I sit next to, right? Obviously, that's really engaging. People are like, what do you mean? And he, it opened the door to talk about what he really did, right? But he's silly. He's being goofy. But the point he's making is true, okay? The Bible makes it clear. Second Timothy says that if we died with Christ, we shall reign with Christ. And then Revelation talks about how we will rule in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know what that really actually means. I don't know what I'm going to rule. But if I'm with Jesus, my future is to rule and to reign with him. And our mission this side of eternity is world domination. That is what the Great Commission is. It is to go and to bring as many people with us to be with God. He deserves their life. And our mission from him is to go into all the world, right, and to bring our little brothers and our little sisters with us. And so then the question is still remains, are we people that God can trust? Are we people that God can trust? What does God look for in those that he trusts? I told you I'm not going to string you along. I'm going to tell you, okay? The thing that God looks for, the thing that I see from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, in every book in between, every man, every woman that is used by God, that God delights to trust in is a humble person. God trusts humble people. God trusts humble people. I see in Isaiah 66 that God says that, okay, he says the dwelling place on earth, he says it's not in the temples, it's not in the church, but that God says he delights to dwell in the hearts of those that have a humble and contrite heart. The place God wants to dwell is a humble heart. In Matthew 23, Luke 14, James 4, 1 Peter 5, and a bunch of other places throughout the Bible, God says that, he, that the people that he exalts, the people he lifts up, the people that he honors are people that are humble. The ones that God lifts up are those that are humble. The greatest men and women of God, men like Abraham, Jacob, right, Moses, Elijah, David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, every man, every woman of God that we see in the Bible that God used to, ch to, to change history were people that were humble. God trusts humble people. And if you and I are going to partake in what God is doing in our world— his grand mission, then we need to be humble people as well. So what does humility mean, right? What is humility? I'm sure all of us have kind of some idea in our head. Some of us are like, you know, I actually don't know what it is if I had to define it. But what I want to do is I want to look at what does God say, bless you, what does God say humility is? What does he show us it to be? And so we're going to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting. You all remember compare and contrast? Right? Like, I'm not, I don't think y'all are dumb. I just want to make sure. So what we're going to do is we're going to compare and contrast Jesus, who is the, the prime example in all of Scripture of what humility looks like. We're going to compare the life of Jesus and his humility to the opposite of humility, which is pride. Okay? And we're going to look at a man named Haman. Um, anyone know the name Haman? Anyone know who he is? Cool. Um, Haman's a bad dude. Uh, if you don't know who he is... There's a book in the Old Testament called Esther. 
it is my favorite Old Testament book. I love this book. It is a it is a thrill ride. Like it is it is such a good story. Honestly, like I think that they could make it into a Netflix miniseries and like just the story alone, like maybe change some names. You don't know like if people didn't know it was from the Bible, they'd be like, This is the best show ever. Like plot twist upon plot twist, like no way, like just crazy incredible, right? Like, and I'm not being silly. I really do think it's like one of the most gripping stories in the Bible. When you read it, you're like, this is insane. And so we're going to kind of go through it. But, but the way the book starts off, so there's this king named Xerxes, and he gets displeased with his wife. And because he's the king of pretty much the known world at the time, he divorces her because she embarrassed him. And then he decides, I want a new wife, okay? And so he goes and looks for a new wife, and he ends up marrying this girl, Esther. And Esther is a Jew. She's one of God's chosen people, right? And so she becomes the new queen of, of pretty much the, the king of all the world. And um, another person in the story is her uncle, Mordecai. So he took care of her. She grew up. Her parents had passed away. Her uncle, Mordecai, takes care of her. And Mordecai is a guard at the king's gate, all right? And so what Mordecai, it's, it makes a point, and we'll see this, it'll come back. It says that there was an assassination attempt that was being plotted against the king, and Mordecai is the one who thwarted it. He actually exposed them, those guys got put to death, and he saves the king's life, right? And so you've got the king, King Xerxes, you've got Esther, his wife, and you've got Mordecai, Esther's uncle. And then in chapter three, we meet Haman, okay? And Haman um, he is pretty much like the case study of what pride is in the Bible. In fact, I, w- I would actually, um, in, my, in my humble opinion, I think that I don't know if there's any other person in the Bible that's meant to show us what pride looks like and the result of pride other than Haman. And in fact, the devil doesn't even get this much attention about just what pride does right? At least in such a concise way. And so in Esther 3, verse 1 through 6, this is where Haman comes on. It says this, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor honor higher than all the other nobles. This dude is second in command, okay? All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down. Esther's uncle would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials in the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So the first thing that we see about pride, as we're doing compare and contrast, is that pride is concentrated on self. Pride is concentrated on self. Haman was a man who was wholly and completely concentrated on him on his self-image, on what he wanted people to think of him, on how he wanted to be treated and to be viewed. Um, and if you know anything about people that are like really, really, like that kind of prideful, like they are the type of person where you're like, oh God, like they're in the room, right? This was him times a thousand. Listen to this. It says in verse two, the king commanded everyone to bow to him. Okay, so understand this. In this culture, when someone walked in that was of a higher authority, it was understood, you bow to them. This dude was second in command, and the king had to command people to bow to him. He was that obnoxious that people were like, the king had to make, him bow, make people bow. Like, if I said, everyone, you have to go tell Carly how great she is. Like, you should just go and tell her she's great. You know what I mean? Like, you shouldn't have to be commanded to go do something that's expected and understood. What kind of man would you have to be to be commanded? You'd be an obnoxious man, right? And what's crazy about Haman, it did not matter that everyone else bowed to him. What he was concerned about was that everyone had to bow to him. Everyone else, literally every other person bowed to him except Mordecai, and that bothered him. Because for him, it was all about him. It was all about his self-image. It was about how people 
saw him. Pride always needs more. Pride always needs more. And what's crazy about pride is that it can accomplish the same thing as many other sins, but not for the same thing. So think about lust, right? Lust, what's the, what's the, the heart of lust? I want this person. They're attractive, and I want to, to do stuff with them. I want to go do something I shouldn't do, right? The heart of lust is, is self-gratification through, through, like, sexual desire. With pride, pride is actually can accomplish the same thing, sleeping with this person. But it's not because of the gratification of sexual desire. It's to prove that I'm able to do it. Pride is, can I get that girl? Can I get that guy? Just to prove to myself that I'm, I'm really that attractive. I'm really that sly, right? Or greed. Greed is wanting more money to, to, to fill some hole in our heart, right? But with pride, it's, I, it's not that I want more money so that I can have all this money. It's I want more money so that I can prove that I have more than you. But there's always, with pride, there's always someone else that's prettier. There's always someone else that has more. There's always someone else, right? And it's so concentrated on self, so self-absorbed, that it, that it ends up ruining us, right? Pride is concentrated on self. Is that the mark of your life? Are you a person that is only concentrated on yourself? It's kind of a, I don't know, hopefully you're humble and <laughs> real with yourself, right? But what we see in the life of Jesus as we contrast pride is that humility is concentrated on others. Humility is concentrated on others. In John 13, we see this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Humility is seen in concentrating on others. Humility is concentrated on others. Um, John Koschel, he was here like a month and a half ago. A lot of y'all heard him. Incredible man of God. I remember years ago, he, he, he gave me this physical illustration of what humility looks like, right? And he said, humility is getting on your knees and putting your hands out so that you can lift your brother or sister up. Humility is lowering yourself that you might lift someone else up. Humility... I believe, is most actively seen and displayed and observed through serving. That is what Jesus did here, right? Jesus, you must understand, he was the son of God. Like, God in the flesh. The most powerful, like, everything, that's every honor, every praise is due to him. He's sitting in this room, and he gets on his knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. And I'm, many of you have probably heard this before, but right, like, in these cultures, they walked a lot, their feet got dirty, and when you came into a house before a meal, you would get your feet washed, and typically the person who did it was the lowest servant. It was the, 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 the dude at the bottom of the totem pole. And so what happened is it's just Jesus and the disciples, and none of these guys want to be the lowest person on the totem pole. None of them want to serve. None of them want to wash each other's feet because that means they're the least. And Jesus gets on his hands and knees, and he washes their feet, and he serves them. And then he says, this is what I want you to do for each other, right? And serving is, I, I think it's funny because, like, if I asked every guy in this room and I said, hey, tomorrow we're going to this church. They need to bust out a wall. We're going to use jackhammers and sledgehammers. You guys would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to serve. Like, I'll tackle the wall. Like, let's go, you know? Like, it, there's times when serving is fun, but then there's the times it's like, hey, man, like, we just had this men's retreat and – these dudes have, like, been using the bathroom for three days, and there's only two stalls. Like, who wants to clean the toilets? Everyone's like, I'm going home. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I got homework. Like, I love, uh, I was telling Frankie, I'm going to call him out. I love Frankie. 
Um, I've been friends with Frankie for a few years, and I think Frankie exemplifies this, this servant hardness of doing the stuff no one else wants to do in such a way that is so beautiful. And so, like, I've been at retreats where it's like, hey, like, who wants to clean the bathrooms? And Frankie's like, I'll do it. And it's not like a, oh, look at me, I'm going to clean the bathroom, right? Like, it's, there is a humility in Frankie that doesn't have to prove anything. He's not concentrated on himself. He wants to, to serve others. And I think that's beautiful. And, and what I love, you know, when I think about humility, right, it's seen in serving, but, but I think this is so cool. When, if you hung out with someone, you met them for the first time, right, and they really truly are a humble person, when you get in your car and you're driving home, the thing you're thinking to yourself isn't, man, they were such a humble person. The thing you're thinking is, man, they cared about me. They, like, they listened to me. They thought I was a big deal. Like, you don't, when you meet a humble person, you don't typically think, wow, they're so humble. You typically think, man, they cared about me. And the reason is, is because if true humility is being concentrated on others and not on self, they really aren't concerned about themselves. They really are concerned about you. And what's crazy about pride is you could, I could be concerned about Brandon if I'm prideful, but it's only as much as I can get out of him to get what I want. But true humility is I'm concerned and I care for you. And when you walk away, you go, man, there was something different about him. Is that the mark of your life, that you're concerned and that you care about others more than yourself? So I say this again. Pride is concentrated on self. Humility is concentrated on others. So jump back to the story of Haman, all right? So Haman hates Mordecai. He hates his guts. He doesn't just want to get back at Mordecai. He says all the Jews are dead. And this is like the king of the known world. So like what Haman wanted to do was genocide. And he didn't just want to do it. He actually tricked the king into writing a law where all the Jews would be killed on a specific day. All right? Like he planned out genocide and it got approved by the king. All right? Well, Esther and Mordecai they find out about this, and they say, uh-uh, right? So they counterplan, all right? This is like, this is literally like, it's such a crazy story. So they, they find out, they start planning their own counterplan, um, and it's really cool. So Esther's plan involves her going to the king and saying, I want to make a request of you, and he grants her request, and she ends up saying, can I have a feast with just me, you, and Haman, just the three of us, and her plan is to expose Haman, all right? And so that's where we pick up in Esther 5, and it says this, Haman went on that day happy and in high spirits because he had just been invited, right? He's so excited he got invited to a, a one, two-on-one meeting with the king and the queen. It says, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and had, how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits, that's 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. And so the second thing we see about pride is that pride is a superiority complex. Pride views itself as better than everyone else. Haman truly believed that he was better than everyone else. Maybe the only person he didn't was the king, but even then, it seems to think, he seems to think that maybe he could, you know, be equal to the king, or maybe he could do stuff a little bit better. Haman thought himself better, and he has to show off, right? Because there is a real deep insecurity that he's struggling to actually believe he's the best, Right? Pride is destructive. Pride is going to kill people. It's going to kill him. But he has to prove to the world that he is who he says. And it, so it brings him no satisfaction. 
that not everyone gives him the praise he thinks he deserves, right? With pride, nothing matters unless either A, you are on the top, right? So there is a reality where some people, pride, it develops, and I have to be CEO. I have to be top salesman. I have to be head engineer. But also, pride rears itself in our opinion that you must be seen the best. Maybe Haman wasn't the king, but, but it mattered to him that he was seen as the best, excluding the king, right? Pride is a superiority complex. And so I wonder, um, this happens, how many of you up until this point, as I'm talking about pride, you're like, oh, I'm thinking about this person. Anyone, honestly, thinking about anyone? I see some honest heads, thank you. Those of you who didn't nod your head, I'm sure you have been. That says something. That, I mean, that, that really does say something. Man, that person is so prideful. I wouldn't be like that. I'll leave that there. You can uh, chew on that. Pride, guys, it is invasive. It is insidious. And the reason, I, I think there's a reason many theologians, many Christians throughout the ages have said that pride really is the root of all sin. That it is at the base of all sin. And, and if you don't believe me, I mean, just look at this. Here's a couple sins that pride is so root in it. Bitterness. Okay? Bitterness. You cannot be bitter at someone unless you think you are better than them. What bitterness looks like is saying, I wouldn't do that. I would not have hurt them like that. I'm better than them. I'm better than that. You cannot be bitter at someone. Sorry. If you are bitter at someone, it's because you believe you're better than them, right? Or anxiety. This one's going to hurt a little bit, okay? Bible says anxiety is a sin. The reason why is because what you're saying in your heart is, I know best how my day should go. I know best how this situation should work out. And you get all anxious and all worked up because you can't control how things are going to go. And so you worry and you get anxious. And the reason why it's prideful is because you're really in your heart saying, God, I know better than you what my life should look like. I know better than God? I, tell me how that's not pride. Pride also rears itself in dishonor or the inability to honor. You cannot truly honor someone if you think you're better than them. You can flatter them. You can say nice things about their clothes. You can say nice things about their character. But true honor is only possible if you do not view yourself as somehow superior or better. Pride thinks itself best. But contrasted to the life of Jesus, we see that humility is a sober sense of reality. Luke 14, 7 through 11, it says, When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus is teaching about humility in this parable and this story is about us having a right view of, of reality, of ourselves, of each other. He wants us to have a right view of what's in front of us. C.S. Lewis, I think, says it best. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself it is thinking of yourself less it's not thinking oh i'm just the worst oh. that's actually a subtle form of pride but humility is just stop just looking at myself less thinking of myself less often humility sees what is real and lives accordingly sees what is real in my life sees what is real in your life and lives accordingly it is better to see yourself for who you are and be exalted than to pretend you are something you're not and be humiliated. I'll say that again. It is better to, 
to see yourself for who you are and let the Lord exalt you than to pretend you're someone you're not and be humiliated. What's really cool about this, there are many of you in this room that are far more intelligent than me. I, I genuinely don't think I could be an engineer. I think I could study for the next 10 years and I wouldn't come close to some of you guys. Like, okay, I am not nearly as athletic as half, more than half of you in this room. Okay, like, you can say that you're smart and it still be humble. I, I want you to understand this. If, sober, if humility is a sober sense of reality and God has gifted you with intelligence, you can say it in a way that's not prideful. Sure, there is a way, like, oh, I'm so smart. I'm smarter than everyone, right? There's this really funny story in the Bible, not story, just verse in the Bible where it says, Moses was the most hum humble man on the earth. And then you realize Moses wrote that. <laughs> You're like, well, that's prideful. It's not. Moses really was the most humble person on the earth. No one in his time saw God face to face. No one spoke with God. God literally wrote the Ten Commandments and gave them to Moses because Moses could be trusted by God because he really was the most humble man on earth. Humility is a sober sense of reality. Okay? And Carly told me this story. If I butcher it, sorry. But there was this woman who um, was used by God mightily. She was a speaker, and it, it was so cool because she really was like gifted of God. It was, it was a true gifting from the Lord. And every time someone comes, they say, man, you, it was so great. And she was like, no, it was God. Oh, it was God. And everyone was like, you're so humble. And then one day the Lord spoke to her and said, why do you keep kind of tarnishing the gift I gave you? You can, you can not accept the praise, but you can, honor, you can receive and say, God did give me this. Give honor where honor is due to the Lord. But my gifting is something that I take part in. She had a part in that. She was gifted. She grew in her talents. And it was okay to say thank you. Not, oh God, you know. Like it was this false humility that she had. And the Lord rebuked her. There is a reality that humility can receive a compliment without swallowing it. Right? You can, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I love when some of you guys come and say, man, the Lord spoke to me. Oh, that, that, I'm, thank you, Lord. That means a lot to me. It affirms me that I'm hearing from the Lord. But if I went home, I was like, yeah, I am good. God speaks through me. That's swallowing a compliment, right? It's okay to receive. Humility can receive without digesting and, and you know, becoming something else. So, pride is a superiority complex. Humility is a sober sense of reality. And so we come to the kind of con conclusion of Esther, at least Haman's story. All right, so Haman's plan is on schedule. He's going he's gonna to destroy the, the, Israel, or the, the Jews, um, and he's, like, proud of himself, right? So Esther and Mordecai have their counter plan. And so what happens, this, it's this crazy, crazy little thing. The king, the night before the feast, is unable to go to bed. He cannot fall asleep. And so he does what anyone else does. You put something boring on, right? And you hope you fall asleep. So he has them read, like, the history of his kingdom. And so, you know, you probably got the oldest man. He's like, four days ago, you know, like. <laughs> that's, that's whose voice? Leonard? No. <laughs> no, that's not his voice. Um. And as they're reading the history, lo and behold, they read about how Mordecai had saved the king from an assassination attempt. And the king said, he kind of perks up and he says, wait, was anything done for Mordecai? And I say, no. He's like, well, we need to honor him. And so the king says, grab whoever's in the hallway, bring him in. We got to figure out what to do for, for Mordecai. And lo and behold, the person in the hallway is Haman. He's coming to ask the king if he can kill Mordecai, right? That's what his wife told him to do. Go in the morning, ask the king to kill Mordecai. And we see this. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, th now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one of the royal crests placed on his head. And the significance of this is that this is like saying this guy is uh, of the same caliber as the king. He's literally wearing and riding the things that only the king would ride and wear, 
right? Like, this is a big deal. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on horse through the city, proclaiming before them, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai. <laughs> you, you can laugh. Who sits at the king's gates. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And it gets worse. He comes back for the feast. And Haman realizes that Esther calls him out. And in a, the king leaves the room for a moment to clear his head. And Haman grabs hold of Esther. And the king walks in and he says, Will you not, are you now going to molest my wife? And he has him, his head bagged, he's dragged off, he's killed. And then Haman is impaled on the very stake that he was intended to kill Mordecai. <laughs> yeah, Charles. The final thing we see from Haman's life about pride is that pride makes you a fool. Guys, pride makes you a fool. Haman was made an utter and complete fool and the only person he had to blame was himself. His instrument of pride, this tower, the 75, I mean, it's taller than this room, 75 foot long pole that he was going stick to uh, stick Mordecai on, everyone in all of Susa would have seen. His instrument of pride to show just how great he was was turned into the instrument of his foolishness and humiliation. Tim Keller says that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's really easy for us to see it in everyone else, but we don't see it in ourselves. And it'll kill you ten different ways before you ever even realize that you're dying. And so we need, we need a carbon monoxide detector. We need a pride detector. And that's, that's why I'm talking tonight, man. This, this will kill you more than anything else, and you won't even realize it until it's too late. Okay? Like, pride will make you a fool. The Bible says... In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The testimony of Scripture is that pride always leads to a fall. Always. It may not be this side of eternity, but pride always leads to a fall. Pride makes you a fool because it's saying what Ravenhill said at the very beginning, that the greatest sin against God is saying, I can manage my life without God. When you just can't. The reality is that you cannot. And if you think you can, that is the greatest offense against our God. Pride will make you a fool, there is no doubt. You can have your way, you can have your accolades, you can have people praise you, you can be the top. But in the end, it will result in foolishness and humiliation. But unlike pride, what we see from the life of Jesus is that humility makes you wise. Praise God. Humility makes you wise. John 5 and John 12 say this. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. So that you will be amazed. And then in John 12 he says, For I do not speak on my own. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Humility is being able to say alongside Jesus, the Son of God, I speak and I do only what my Father tells me. I speak and I do only what my Father tells me. Guys, this again, this is Jesus, God incarnate. And Jesus was content with taking orders from his Father. He says, I do not do anything unless my father tells me, and I do not speak anything unless my father first tells me. This, like, like, this is the son of God. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have made his own agenda. And Jesus comes, and in humility, takes orders from his father, and this makes him the wisest man who ever lived. Why, uh, sorry, humility is seen as people that are fine with learning from God and others rather than having to learn for ourselves, okay? Like, true humility and its result in wisdom 
is being able to say, I can learn from my brother Brandon. I don't have to go and figure this out for myself. And so um, Heather helped me with this, uh, this just kind of working this out. But I really do believe you can learn two ways. You can either learn through humility or you can learn through humiliation, right? And so what this looks like is if, man, if my friend comes up to me and is like, dude, man, you, you should not sleep with your girlfriend. I did. It was terrible. It was not what everything, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. The guilt, I hurt God, I hurt her, I hurt myself, I hurt everyone around me. Don't do it. And you're like, screw you, man. And you do it. And then what happens? Oh, you were right, man. Like, there's this deceitful lie that we hear, like, you got to try everything. You got to try everything once. And there, there is a godly side of that. It's just called adventure. We should go and try new things, right? But there is a deceitful, like there's a lie that the devil has used that says you, you need to try everything, man. You don't trust your friends. It'll be good for you. You can do this sin. It'll, it'll be good for you. But real wisdom is seen in saying, I don't have to learn the hard way. I, I have people and I have a God that love me enough to say, I, I, I just trust them. And in lowliness, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to obey what they say. And, and my friends, that is true wisdom. Okay, that is true wisdom, and Jesus exemplified that. Pride makes you a fool, but humility makes you wise. So as we kind of start to land this, can God trust you, right? Can God trust you? Fill in your name. Does God trust me? The type of person God wants to use to change the world is a humble person. And there is a reality we see it in Scripture, that God will still use prideful people. God will still use disobedient people to accomplish what he's doing in the earth. But it will be in spite of them, not in cooperation with them. And at the end, the result is still foolishness and humiliation. Right? God used Haman to accomplish his victory. It was in spite of Haman, not because of what he was doing alongside God, right? So, are you humble? Are you humble? The band can go ahead and come up, right? And as the band's coming up, I'm sure, you know, you're like, okay, well, what's our response? Like, what, what are we going to do, right? Like, we always give something practical, right? And so you're probably going to be like, okay, what we need to do is we just need to be humble. That's the response, right? Wrong. No. Don't, Okay? You got a big old line through it. Write, be humble, and then cross it out, okay? If you got it on your phone, there's a strike through, all right? That's what I did on that. Just being humble is not the answer. And here's why. You can be prideful about how humble you are. Frankie could actually leave this room. I pray to God he won't. But he could leave this room going, I am the guy who cleans the toilets, Look at me. Like, really? And all of a sudden, being humble is a badge of pride. And it becomes this stinking, disgusting smell to the Lord. And what was once beautiful, this attempt to be humble so that God would use you, all of a sudden becomes the very thing that separates you. And so our response tonight is not to be humble. Our response is to be made humble. Okay? Our response tonight is to be made humble. And I know that's just, oh, cool, one word you changed. But what I mean is this. How are we made humble? We are made humble by seeing Jesus for who he really is and seeing us for who we really are and realizing, man, this, this, this changes me. He changes me. What do I mean by this? Guys, Jesus never asks us to do anything he has never done himself. He is a humble king. He is a humble master. He will not demand anything of you that he has not first done. Guys, Jesus, this sounds contradictory. Jesus was strong enough to be weak. Jesus was strong enough to take a slap on the face and not defend himself. Jesus was strong enough to die on a cross 
and take the torment and the shame and the humiliation that was not his. He didn't deserve it. The reality of Christianity is there is not a single thing that you could ever do to make yourself right with God. Jesus is the only one who can, and he did. He took the wrath of God. It says, <laughs> I don't, make sense of this how you will. In Isaiah, it says that it pleased God to strike him. Pleased the Father to strike the Son, to pour out his wrath. There's, there's some heavy theology in that. There's some heavy reality. But there was something that happened and I don't think that it was like a vindictive, like, yeah, I'm hitting my son. But it was a pleasure that we might be his. And you know what's so crazy about Haman? What Haman desired was actually a good thing. He just wanted the love and the appreciation of a good king. He just chose the wrong king. But the reality of our king is that he can look at you, Sam, and say, hey, I am delighted in you. And that, the king of the universe saying, Ryan, I'm delighted in you. Abby, I'm delighted in you. Molly, I'm delighted in you. That does something to you. And it starts to break something in you. And it starts to break pride and go, I don't deserve this. I can't earn this. But you would be delighted in me? And that, that is where we become humble. When we see Jesus for who he is and we let him transform our lives. God can and will and wants to use you as you will allow him to humble you. You can fight back. You can say, no, I don't like this. I don't like the tension. I don't like having to give up these things. But as you let the Lord humble you, there's a pleasure, there's a, there's a, um, it's not just about usefulness, so hear this rightly, but there's a usefulness, there's a, a coming alongside God, and how much more will he do as you're with him rather than against him? And so what I want to do in response is, uh, we, we've been talking about the three reels a lot, and I just want to do this, man, like, we're going into a break. We're going into the last couple of weeks of school. You guys are busy. You guys, I, I get it, right? But I want us to focus on how can we open ourselves and set our posture in such a way that God could humble us, right? So in your daily devotion to Jesus, be made humble by God. Realize that God wants to be your friend. The king of all the universe wants to be to spend time with you. He's told you what, what it looks like to live with him, to walk with him in his word. Let his word humble you. Let your time with him humble you. Be made humble by your friendships. Realize I can't do this alone. Don't spend the next three weeks by yourself. Study with your friends. Like, realize I can't do this alone. God has given you people who love you and care about you. You are not the center of the world. Realize that. Let the Lord humble you. And then let the Lord humble you as he's invited you into responsibility. God's master plan is to save the world, and you get to be a part. Every time I just stop, I'm like, I know me. Why, like, why would you ask me, God? But he's invited me in, and that humbles me. Set your eyes on Jesus and be humbled. Realize, <laughs> this one's, no one likes this. I love it. You are too weak to do what he's called you to. Embrace it. First Corinthians says that God uses the weak and foolish things to shame the strong and the wise, to accomplish what he's doing on the earth. Embrace your weakness and realize that God wants us to be a part of this. And so, as we leave, as we go into this semester, or as, as this break, I want you to write this down. Do not pray, help me to be humble. Don't pray that. Pray, God, humble me. 
humble me. Not make me humble. I was literally praying beforehand. I was like, Lord, just help me be humble tonight. I was like, no. Humble me tonight. And use me. And set your eyes on Jesus this break, okay? Put your eyes on him. Spend time with him. It's only as you see yourself in relation to him that, that you're made humble. And so I want to give you all like, home, not homework, but like a practical. Tomorrow, I want you to think, I want you to pray, God humble me and give me a way where I can serve someone. What can I do tomorrow to serve someone, right? Not that I might be humble, but that I might be made humble. Who in my life can I serve tomorrow or tonight? I mean, you can do it tonight. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. And then, why not just think, go on one more step. I'm going to be home with my family for a month. How can I serve them and be made humble with my family, right? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk out of here and say, Lord, humble me. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for using what we offer. Thank you, Jesus, for, for letting me come alongside you and share what you have to say to us tonight, God. I pray that each of us would respond in, in real humility. Not a false sense of, oh, look at me and I'm being a good Christian, but God, that you would actually humble us tonight, God. Lord, if we need to confess our sins, if we need to confess who we've been in relation to you, then pray, pray, God, I pray that we would do that, whether with you or with a friend. Say, man, I've been treating the Lord this way, and I'm sorry. God, if we just need to... <laughs> I know there's a, a block in our heart, a block in our spirit, God, uh, and, 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 and help us to, in humility to realize whether that's pride or something else that's holding that, God. And I pray that as we are honest, that you would release that and that God even, I, I don't know why I keep getting this sense, uh, I, I know that there is a, a preciousness and a, and a healing in tears that Jesus, or that God, you said that you actually collect our tears in a bottle, that they are precious to you. They are mementos to you, God. And so I pray if tonight that, that some of us, man, we just, that something's got to change. Something's got to break. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship, there would be a, a release and even in humility to say, it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cry. And I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think if I go to the front. I don't care what people think if I put my hands up. I don't care what people think. I want to be humbled and near to you, and I want to be trusted by you, God. So I pray that over my friends tonight. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our praise. You would be lifted high and exalted, Jesus. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.